Welcome to Essential Ethics, your gateway to discussion about the ethics of medical treatment for sick children. This podcast is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, John Massey, Clinical Lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This episode is part of our series called The Ethics Toolkit. When treating sick children and their families, clinicians are sometimes faced with challenging ethical situations. This series explores how bioethicists help clinicians address these challenges. Throughout most of the history of medicine, patients have come to their doctors to be made well, with the doctor using her or his technical skill to diagnose and treat, the patient submitting themselves to the recommended treatment. Prior to anaesthetics, patients might refuse, preferring death to the treatment, as the famous French physician Dupatron did when dying of an empyema. The treatment was a hot metal rod thrust between the ribs to create a hole to drain the pus. Dupatron said, I would rather die at God's hands than at the hands of the surgeon. It was a like-it-or-lump-it model of care. Of course, no one practising medicine today really takes this approach. At least, not those in most situations where there's time to talk with the patient and come to some sort of arrangement or agreement about treatment. Involving the patient in care would be considered normal now, a model broadly called shared decision-making. In 1982, the United States Presidential Commission for the Study of Ethical Problems in Medicine, Making Medical Decisions, recommended that shared decision-making between physicians and patients become the gold standard of care. But is it really that simple? Do doctors really involve patients authentically in their own care? Or do patients just choose what they want in a neoliberal medical marketplace? To help us sort this out, I'm joined today by Dr. Juliana Antolovich, paediatrician and friend of Essential Ethics. Juliana works in developmental medicine here at Royal Children's Hospital. Welcome, Juliana. Hi. I am also joined by Professor Claire Delaney, senior ethicist at the Children's Bioethics Centre Royal Children's Hospital and professor at the University of Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Welcome, Claire. Thank you, John. Juliana, I think we should start by trying to find out what might be our understanding of what shared decision-making means. Okay. I think I probably need to uh, have a disclosure before I even start. I am a doctor who still sees patients. I'm not a healthcare worker. I don't have clients or consumers. And I think I need to be really clear about that from the outset, because it might in fact, influence the way that I approach this topic. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest, Juliana? Not just yet. There might be, but for the moment, we'll go with that. (laughs) Um, The other thing that I just want to highlight in terms of thinking about this topic is something around the language that we use. And I just was reflecting before coming here today that when we talk about parents, we talk about them having wishes, wants, 
demands. And in contrast, when we speak about the perspective of a doctor, it's their assessment or their recommendation. And already there seems to be a tilt away potentially from a family in terms of that decision-making paradigm. So you you asked about how we approach shared decision-making potentially. Um, And in paediatric medicine, there's the classic triad. We have the child, we have the paediatrician or doctor, and we have the parent. And in this idealised paradigm, the parent comes with specific knowledge about their child, their beliefs, their values, and their experience of the child. And that's mixed together with the technical expertise and knowledge of the doctor, and out pops a perfect decision. But the reality of that or the practicality of that is is quite different. And I just wanted to highlight two things before we enter into the discussion. There are both parent factors and doctor factors that really impact on this in practical ways. From a parental perspective, I think there are changes in the way information is available to families. That means that the parent is also present as a medical expert. In the case of children with rare diseases, which is a population very much a part of my day-to-day work, individual parents often have very complete knowledge about their child's rare condition because of their ability to source information online, to be in touch with experts um, from other centres around the world. And they also gather a lot of information from other parents. So that triad has already expanded and extended to include a whole lot of voices and a different type of expertise. So it sounds like, Juliana, your model of shared decision-making takes into account your professional technical knowledge and expertise in medicine and the particular conditions, although particularly perhaps in paediatrics and developmental medicine where you work, then there may not actually be a lot of people who know a lot about that specific condition, although there's often commonalities in terms of the complications and how we might manage those. So you have that technical expertise and the patient then brings their values and interests and the things that are important to them to the table. Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to marry those two up. I am trying to marry those two up. But I think the additional point is that the family are not just bringing their values and beliefs. They're adding a layer of medical expertise that they've gathered. Whether I want it there or not, it is there. And I think I would say that the doctor is not there in a single dimension theoretical technical knowledge uh, role either because we have our own cognitive biases, we have our own uh, personal beliefs which might direct uh, care one way or another and I think we also have to think about the environment in which the doctor is working and that may well influence how they engage in shared decision making. The things I would highlight there are, is the doctor um, engaging in a patient-focused or diagnosis-focused way? Is the doctor able to create a therapeutic alliance? Are they detached or are they engaged? 
And is the environment suitable? For example, is there sufficient time? Is the doctor pressed upon by KPIs and other accountabilities? So there are psycho-emotional impacts that are coming from the doctor's side as well as the family side. So these clear delineations and clear roles are not at all clear and we have to take that into account as we approach shared decision-making. It certainly seems that it's no longer a simple matter, is it? And no, no, uh, we no. can say shared decision-making and it does perhaps mean a lot of different things and I think your patients are very fortunate that you've obviously done a lot of thinking about that and, and how to recognise your own limitations and how to bring out the parents' knowledge and interests and, and values and come to a practical Again, in an uh, idealised way. <laughs> yes, of course. And perhaps we have the advantage of essential ethics in the studio of, of talking like that. And you're right, it can get pretty messy out mm -hmm. there in the field. There is really, though, a very big uh, ethical underpinning uh, of what shared decision making uh, might mean in all its different forms. So we're very pleased, uh, Claire, for you to be here with us today to think about that. And I know you're perhaps going to share one of the papers uh, with the audience that we were discussing uh, earlier, and you used an analogy of an iceberg that I liked, and mm -hmm. I hope I'm not stealing too much from no, no. you with, with shared decision-making. In your paper, it was a specific element of it, consent at the top, mm. and then somewhere even above the waterline and a bit below were professional recommendations or perhaps that recommendation from the US presidential Commission. And then underneath the water, a very large ethical body uh, yes. of work. And I guess just as I ask you to let's start thinking about those, I just want to wonder whether that large underpinning is dragging it down <laughs> and sinking it, shared decision making, or is it actually pushing it up and making it float? So over to yeah, you, nice. Claire. Uh <laughs> So, so, John, what you're referring to there is um, a few years out of my life where I looked really closely at the ethical theory which underpins the visible and rule-based guideline to obtain informed consent. But in doing that, I looked very closely at shared decision-making because really informed consent is a component of that. I use the model of the iceberg because... We don't articulate very often the ethical underpinnings of what we do as health professionals. They just sit there. And the other really important thing is that different clinicians, and already Juliana has identified herself as a clinician who sees her role in interacting with a patient to be an interaction between her and a patient. And I'm thinking there what you mean is that the, the patient has needs physical, emotional, and a doctor has some capacity to to help that patient, mm. yes. <laughs> uh, which is different to a consumer who is to be presented with a range of um, things that are available uh, and who ch chooses. Mm. So it's very, very um, selective and important language, which, which holds mm. meaning. But so Juliana's interpretation of the iceberg underneath the water, the theory, is that in respecting a patient's, a person's autonomy, her role 
is not to just give them choices because and, and to allow them to self-determine what they want, which is one version of autonomy, but her role is to help that person, you know, have a capacity to use their autonomy, which means, mm-hmm. th- you know, think about what is important. Uh, so she's helping that person and there's a lot in that. How do you, how do, you do that? But I think um, that body of ethical theory is there to hold up and inform what people do and not to drag it down. <laughs> so I think, Claire, clearly autonomy or what often in paediatrics we find comfortable to talk about is respect for persons. Yes. I think that is a better way to relate to, to the adults and certainly a far better way to relate to the child and actually bring the child into the conversation. Of course, young children potentially less so, and as they become emerging decision makers in their adolescence, come to then think a little bit about that because a lot of the discussions about shared decision making, people are really thinking about a doctor and a patient. Of Mm. course, we often have lots of doctors um, Mm. involved in things. Claire, so autonomy is clearly an important ethical principle underpinning that. What about some of the other principles we like, like beneficence? Do you think that plays into it? I think it does. If you are respecting um, the the obvious underpinning ethical principle of shared decision-making is respect for a person's autonomous choices. But beneficence isn't just about the outcome of the treatment in a physical sense. Respect for autonomy is beneficial to people. Psychologically, we know that. Um, Emotionally, we know that. And also it can enable them to have involvement and from a really instrumental perspective, allowing a person to choose and to be part of the decision-making means they're likely to cooperate (laughs) from a really sort of outcome basis. I mean, I think, Juliana, we've shared some patients and I I definitely think that that sense of uh, shared involvement from the families uh, helps them, practically helps us and then and helps them come to difficult decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, we're looking after kids. So this is children's ethics. So supporting them as Mm -hmm. emerging decision makers uh, is, Mm -hmm. is very important. One thing I was quite interested in, and Juliana was probably more than hinting at it, but in the models and that people talk about good shared decision-making, it seems that drawing out the parent, if they're the main decision-maker, and helping them understand their own values. So in a sense, some coaching. Is that what I'm hearing? I feel like I just need to take a step back. I think one of the things that that troubles me when I think about shared decision-making and autonomy is it feels very different if I'm sitting with another adult who is making what might seem a weird idiosyncratic decision for themselves, that's the decision they're making. But when a parent is making a decision on behalf of a child, and for many of the kids that I look after, that that period of proxy decision-making extends well beyond that, that young childhood phase because many children don't have the ability to communicate their needs independently, then that changes the dynamic quite a bit for me. And I think we just have to stop and recognise that it is a triad and some of these more straightforward two-way interactions 
feel different when they're really proxy decisions. So we are drawing out um, what a parent's values might be, but we have to keep in mind that the child is our patient. The child is the person about which the decisions are being made. So I just want to bring that child back into the story. But yes, we are trying to to understand what their values, what their values are. And if we think about, for example, end of life care, I think as clinicians, as we move into that shared decision making space, I think we're often asking the wrong question, which takes us to technical things rather than taking us to that space where we can really understand what's important to a family. I'll just add to that. I think there's real hints and and tips within just the words if you think about them deeply. Mm. Um, So shared decision-making, just three words. But if you think about what needs to be shared here, Mm. uh, then it's not just information choices, but what else needs to be shared is what does this family value, believe in, where are they at in their understanding of their child's condition? What are they hoping for? So that information has to be shared in order for any sort of decision to be relevant Mm. or at the right moment or framed in a way that the doctor and the family and the child can understand. Mm. So it's really complex. But the hints are in the words. Mm. If you say, what do I mean by a decision? Who's who's going to be affected? Is it short term? Is it long term? Who should make it? So just keep going back to those words and analysing or at least uncover what you're doing with those words. Mm-hmm. So it's a really very helpful point, Claire, because I think that what we wanted to get out of today, and we have got more, so we haven't quite got all of there yet, is, is you know, what are the components of, mm. of shared decision-making? And and I think being clear about the diagnosis from the doctor's end, at least to mm-hmm. start with, we're not always, but no. where we can be clear. And then I know, Juliana, because we, we've been together, um, we will often ask the family, what do you understand? So mm. where are they at in terms of their alignment with uh, the doctor's diagnosis mm, and, mm. and prognosis and where things are, and now the parents. Mm. And so I think those are two key elements of shared mm. decision-making. And yeah. then there's bringing out some other aspects of uh, patients, parents' values and ideals mm. Uh, mm. from there to try and, uh, and bring us together. I think we're going to have to come back to this end of life because mm. there are some some really important points in there. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the ethical principles. So we've been we've considered uh, mm. autonomy, which is, is so germane to it, um, beneficence because we're trying to help people. What about justice, Claire? Because justice can take into account just simple fairness. Mm. So we want to treat everybody equally and some it's harder to, mm. uh, they find it harder to understand what's what's going on, they need more time. But really the process ought to be the same. And then there's this other concept that I've run into and it's starting to get into my lexicon, which is epistemic justice, which is actually knowledge. And that I think, unfortunately, we are still in a position in modern medicine, as good as we think we are at communicating, where we either withhold or don't tell or maybe control the narrative. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I think justice is um, often left out because it seems too hard. (laughs) But uh, 
the aspects that you just mentioned, which is the idea of justice being equal treatment of people, actually means the whole notion of sharing decisions between you and the family or the parents or the child that, that's with you becomes way more complex. Mm. Because to be equal to this family, in um, even at a micro level, this family who's in front of you right now might be extremely upset, grief-stricken or uh, stressed in other ways, or they might be extremely well-equipped, lots of supports. So what does it mean to share decisions with these two different types of people and how can you give them some equal measure of your skills and interactions means really being focused and asking where they're at and probing that and taking that quite seriously to inform then how you respond. So in a sense, that's a sort of micro-level justice. Uh, And then you have to think about, I've got 17 people in the waiting room (laughs) and how am I going to organise my communication and capacities to assist people and empower them given the competing number of tasks. Yeah, I mean, it's it's as you probe, it, it gets more and more complicated. My notes for the podcast got longer, you know, longer and longer <laughs> as we try and mm. get to some fine-grained detail. I've always been interested in virtue ethics. Do mm. you, do you, and, and so we're so used to, you know, looking at the principles and that's been very s- strong in our toolkit. But what about, you know, virtue ethics? Does that sort of teach us anything in terms of this process? The way I often think about virtue ethics, and, and apologies to all the virtue ethics uh, academics uh, and philosophers, is to ask the question, what would a good doctor or clinician do? And that will take you to the same set of values that you get from principles, but it does tend to shift the focus into what is my role here? What can I do which is to achieve the best that I can offer? If you take that seriously, it really does open up a lot of thinking about how can I best use my skills so I have knowledge and how can I use that knowledge justly, which goes to your epistemic uh, justice idea, uh, because I could at a superficial level, honour the idea of shared decision-making by saying, well, here's all your choices and it's really up to you. And on one level that might seem like I'm being a good doctor, but if you probe a little more, then there's a whole lot more that you're, the fact that you have this knowledge and education and understanding of human psychology, what would a virtuous doctor do? They would be thinking a lot about what this family needs and how to empower this family or this patient to enable them to exercise their autonomy. My conception was that these the words like caring and empathic and thoughtful, that I just have to look over at Juliana <laughs> to think that that's what she's doing, my observations are, but that does help us weigh the relative importance of the of the principles. Um, yeah, I think sometimes. so. It tends to, um, if you ask yourself, what would a good doctor do? You then have to ask yourself, well, is the best thing that I can do is give information and just leave it at that? Or is the best thing I can do for this family to do more than that or to understand my role differently? But Juliana, do you think there's time though that uh, this is all very well in theory land here? <laughs> I, I was... 
Um, I was feeling the exhaustion descend on yeah, me as Claire was, was talking. Yeah, Claire's put a very big <laughs> onus on us. You see, this is where the iceberg, we could be sunk by the ethical <laughs> theory, but there's you know a job to be done. But do you think that the approaches, because I think there are two poles, aren't there? There's what I call grand paternalism mm. from the old days, and then there's the smorgasbord, the neoliberal, mm. here are all the things mm. you can do, you, you choose. And, and clearly most of the time if not all, both are wrong. But somewhere in the middle lies the truth. Mm. And and do you think the circumstances of what's going on might give you some gradation of where you should be at that moment? Sure, it's the circumstances. And also I think you do need to reflect carefully about who is in front of you and do that in a non-judgmental way. I, I do worry that we sometimes get caught up in being worried that we're recognising that a family has poor education or poor health literacy. That is only negative if you use that as a judgement against that family. But if you don't take that into account, into how you present information, the time that you spend, you are not making a good decision. You're not behaving like a good doctor and there's no justice there. Um, so understanding the circumstances will take you one way or another. And there may be um, some families who, from a cultural perspective, really want to be given, for example, more direction. Um, and you need to be mindful in giving that direction that you're not straying into a space where you're really ignoring their needs. I think for me, often a challenging uh, space is where a family might have a very clear view of what they absolutely definitely want and I don't think that it is the safe or the right or the best thing to do for the child. And in those situations, I would like to be a bit more maternalistic and shift the focus. So, yes, somewhere in between. I do want to say something about the smorgasbord. The smorgasbord almost worries me more than the paternalistic end because I do feel that we relinquish a responsibility that we have to engage with decision making and a responsibility we have to provide care. So I think I worry a bit more about the smorgasbord end than the Yeah, other I mean, end. I think the smorgasbord at one very superficial level might acknowledge autonomy and self-determination at one very... But it doesn't actually provide beneficence, which I think, as we've been discussing yeah. it in the context of... The Google of machine provides the smorgasbord. We should be doing more. So, you know, there are some concerns that shared decision-making isn't working mm. out mm. out there, and I think we've highlighted that there are some physician factors in that. Mm, um, absolutely. And there are patient factors, and I think some of those are the same ideas in terms of differences in values. Mm. Certainly for patients, health literacy becomes a really important thing, um, perception of statistics and understanding yes. uh, understanding those uh, and, and cultural biases, of course, those are things that mm. cultural biases that physicians have. So if we just come back to this end of end mm. of life, because I sense that sometimes we put a burden on parents to make a decision. We share with them the diagnosis, tragic, no further active treatment is going to save the life of the child. So the decision comes about withdrawing life-sustaining mm. treatment. And we have to tell the parents that's mm. the right thing to do. But then somehow the parents are then making 
the decision, and even if they're not physically pulling out the endotracheal mm-hmm. tube, but sort of emotionally they are. Yeah. Have you been in those situations and how do you handle that? Or I have been in those situations and I would like to think as I have got older, there has been some wisdom that has come into it because if you stand back and think there is no parent who could be asked the question, would you like your child to die, that they would say emphatically yes. And I think often, and we're going back to the question of language, often the way we approach, the way we ask that question of parents, we create the burden for them. And I think we've got an enormous responsibility there and we have to think very carefully. In those situations, I would like to think the perspective that I could give families is one where this is where we are, your much-loved child is dying. The thing that we can change, modify, control is how that might happen. And in doing so, asking them about what's really important to them. And then you can draw out part of the story, which might be, I really don't want them to be in intensive care, or I really don't want them to have pain or I really would like them to be at home. And then you can go back from that position to make decisions about what you do at the bedside. And I like to emphasise to them that actually we're not deciding this. This is a decision that is in some way in the hands of the child who has this condition. And we do need to take that responsibility away from parents. And I do sometimes wonder if as doctors, we feel better if we say, well, we've left it up to the parents, it's for them to decide what's best for them. But I think we are absolutely abrogating our responsibility in that space, absolutely. But I think there is a way to do it so that we walk alongside them in what is the most difficult journey they will ever have, but not leave them alone to make that decision. So I think there are absolutely ways to do it. I think everything you've said is correct, but I'm going to challenge you. Challenge through, away. <laughs> through Claire. I think one of the ways of describing what you're talking about uh, could be clinical leadership. But is that just soft maternalism, Claire? <laughs> no, I don't think it is. There might be a little bit of it there. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that what Juliana said was really wise, actually, and she really captured especially at end of life, I think the role in shared decision-making, the sharing is the values and that means you need to find out um, hopes, fears, concerns, understanding of the illness or dying trajectory Mm -hmm. and that is the hardest work and to get that information because then that allows you to be the sort of translator into, well, which medical pathway sort of matches those values? How can we respect those values and preferences and and understanding? And that's not to say they are going to be definitive, Mm -hmm. that this conversation must happen a lot (laughs) or many times in, in the child's journey. So I think what Juliana described when she said start from the values, then go backwards to see what options are available that are close to that. That is a really strong, ethically enriched meaning of sharing decisions. 
whereas that more weaker, shallow version of sharing decisions is to just give what decisions are there and ask for preferences. So there's a lot more going on. And so I'm going back to that um, ethical theory holding you up rather than dragging you down. <laughs> I just felt held up then. That was good. <laughs> I, I, that's, that, that's terrifically. And I think what I'd like to just draw our listeners' attention to is a paper that I found extraordinarily helpful over the last few years. It's Muriel Gillick's paper. That's not Gillick from Gillick Competence. And she's written a paper called Re-Engineering Shared Decision-Making in the Journal of Medical mm-hmm. Ethics in 2015. And the highlights where shared decision-making has failed, and for all the reasons that we've been thinking, mm-hmm. patient, physician, uh, systems, but really comes to the, the conclusion that it's goal-driven care, and that's mm-hmm. what you were actually using mm-hmm. there before I rudely mm-hmm. accused you of soft maternalism, <laughs> but it's goals and, yeah. and goal-driven uh, care and then trying to see what we have to offer in this situation mm-hmm. that's clearly defined to achieve those goals, although perhaps sometimes those goals aren't need, need a bit of massaging or thinking or, yeah. or, or leading mm-hmm. uh, too. Claire, I wanted to ask you about another phenomena in the shared decision-making, and, and it's perhaps because we've got shared decision-making wrong, but we've always been interested in moral distress. It was very strongly come out of the nursing literature, mm-hmm. uh, and it's come out because I think often nurses aren't party to all the decisions, can see the patient's suffering and not feeling that the decision-making has been correct for the, for the patient's needs. I think that's well understood. But what's emerging is another type of of moral distress, but where sometimes that physicians are feeling constrained by the parents' choices. And Trish Prentice and Lynn Gillum wrote a nice paper recently about this. And they said shared decision-making has so strongly been aligned to medical professionalism and the expectation of patients and their families that the limits of shared decision-making are not easily recognised in clinical practice. So do you want to expand on that a little? Well, I think that moral distress classically arises when you're asked to do something or in a position where you're delivering some level of care that you think is morally wrong. And so if we're, I'm presuming that in that paper, I haven't read it for a while, in that paper, they suggest that by putting the onus of the decision on the parents and being witness to parents making a decision which they, a doctor, may think is manifestly wrong for this child or burdensome or, um, you know, will lead in the long term to some problem, then that is a classic case of moral distress because because of shared decision-making, they feel constrained. They're not able to change the situation Now, that allows me to come back to a broader view of virtue ethics, which I think Mm -hmm. rather than only thinking, well, what would a good doctor be and do, uh, which puts a big responsibility and weighed Juliana down, uh, (laughs) I think another facet of thinking about a good doctor is how can I make sure that I continue to be a good doctor and uh, what are the boundaries of what I can offer and, you know, what are the limits to, to my role? And that can help in not feeling the weight of responsibility all the time on yourself. If you can offer the information that you think is really important, you can work hard at understanding where the parents or the patient is coming from. 
you can do as much as you can, but there is a limit. And recognising that you cannot produce the outcome that you think is important. Having said that, for a child, I think you can override parents and there is a limit. Mm. So I suppose just being aware of the limits of your role, but also the limits of the parents' authority. Uh, so, So I think a virtuous sort of clinician understands their role, the limits, and the the role and the limits of the patient. So that helps frame things and support you a little more. I think that's very helpful, Claire. And I think Mm. that starts to round us out very nicely as we come to the end uh, of this podcast. So shared decision-making does have limits at at both ends and Mm. trying to find that uh, sweet spot that takes into account um, the circumstances and the particular needs of the patient, the particular perspectives of of the doctor is really, really important. But I think also, I think it's too easy just to say shared decision-making. So what I hope our listeners have gained, mm-hmm. that it's very deep, and we probably have only skimmed a bit of the ice off the <laughs> edge of the iceberg, but I can work the metaphor just a little more, just in the <laughs> sense that I think it really has pushed us up. I think that yeah. it is keeping us uh, afloat with the, the ethical theory below. But I think that a challenge to all of us, but particularly uh, perhaps our younger doctors who haven't got that experience yet and, and found their way to it, is to really probe shared decision-making a bit more because it becomes a very valuable experience for the physician as mm-hmm. well as delivering practical outcomes mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for the patient. So, Claire, thank you very much. Thank you, For getting John. under the iceberg. And, Juliana, thank you very much for being on top of the iceberg. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded in the Creative Services Studio at the Royal Children's Hospital. It was produced in conjunction with Wavelength Creative. If you like the podcast... Please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.